Recent fires in California and throughout the West have been compared to nuclear winter. But scientists say the real story is climate change. If you didn't believe it before, new records for heat and for acres burned and the worst air quality in the world make it impossible not to believe in it now. Hello again, I'm Warren Alney and this is How the World Works. Our podcast comes from the UCLA Anderson School of Management, where a new course is being taught this year. It's called Climate Change, Energy, and Finance. It's taught not by one, but two award-winning economists. Professor Ivo Welch holds the J. Fred Weston Chair in Finance. Professor Emeritus Bradford Cornell is also Managing Director of BRG, the Berkeley Research Group. And Professor Cornell, I think you're the senior partner here, and I'm going to start with you. First of all, thanks very much for being with us. No problem. I look forward to it. I have heard you say that this course has to be pass-fail because you don't know all the answers and you probably don't know all the questions. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah, I, I, I don't know how I would give an exam in a course like this, given that there's so many questions and we don't know the answers. So what we do uh, is we ask the students to prepare a presentation like they were making it to the governor on some issue related to climate change and energy use and we grade them on the quality of that presentation. What have you learned from them so far? Well, Eva, what would you say to that? Good question. Uh, we've learned that there is a lot of questions and a lot of details we don't know either. For example, we had a student presentation about recycling in California, and there were lots of things that I didn't know about it, what the methane consequences were, what the various other consequences were. So we learn as much from the students on particular subjects as they learn from us. It's definitely collaborative. So it sounds like you're learning science. Well, a lot of it is science. I mean, this course is a, an interface between science and business and all of climate change is going to be that type of interface. We're gonna to have to deal with some very complicated trade-offs and understanding the science will be at least a part of that. Tell me, Ivo, how is this a financial issue? And, and uh, what can you teach people about uh, the way to approach it uh, from that standpoint? Everything is a financial issue. Inventions are easy to come by. There are thousands of useful inventions that, that never came to anything. Uh, and for virtually everything from electrification to power to anything else, it's all about making it happen and making it happen on a large scale. And that's only going to happen if you think about the economics and the finance and the innovation process and the intellectual property and all sorts of other issues that are involved with this. The, the invention, the innovation part is the smallest part. Financing it is the big part. Designing mechanisms to pay for all the types of things that we talk about and envision in the class is important as well. And it's an aspect of what we discuss. You're teaching management, you're teaching finance. Does this go beyond that? Do corporations and financial institutions have a moral obligation to do what they can about climate change? Should managers of the kind that you have in your class make sure it's on the agenda? Yeah, this has one I've written a great deal about, Warren. And, and my view is probably not so much. That is, these problems are national or international problems. And how can you expect someone whose full-time job is, say, running Snapchat to make a decision of whether we ought to do geoengineering or whether we ought to have a carbon tax 
or how big it is. In my view, we can't have hundreds of different corporate executives trying to make these decisions. This has to be done at the highest level possible. On the other hand, if emissions continue, isn't it true that things will simply get worse and the consequences of climate change will get worse? Doesn't everybody have an obligation to do as little as possible? But how do we coordinate? The future of climate change won't be made here in the United States. It will be made in China, in India, in Bangladesh, in Africa, in Latin America, where the great majority of the people live and want to have more energy and more middle-class lives. So it's such a high-level coordination problem. What we can do ourselves, or even in all of California, is going to be relatively insignificant. It has to be done at the highest level. Evo, back to you. That will sound to a lot of people who are very concerned about climate change as if we're giving up and uh, we're not doing all that is necessary to do. How do you respond to people who ask that question? I'm sure some of your students ask it. Climate change is one of the defining questions of our time. It's of tremendous importance to humanity. And shall I add that it doesn't even matter whether it's man-made or not man-made, the consequences are going to be the same. We emit a lot more carbon dioxide, whether it's natural or unnatural sources, and the world will change dramatically. Happened many times before, will happen many times later. We have an obligation collectively to do something about it. We want to prevent misery, uh, especially in the developing world, especially for poorer people, but for all of us. So we have a lot of obligations to do something about it. But trying to do this individually, one-on-one, by taking shorter showers or driving an electric vehicle is not going to make any difference whatsoever. Our obligation is really to popularize the message, to tell people how they can change the world, how they can help coordinate solutions that work everywhere. So, for example, if a businessman were to invent a better way, a cheaper way to bring solar panels to Bangladesh, to Africa, to Latin America, to other places, That could make a big difference. That would be very different from somebody just individually changing how much meat they eat. The latter is not going to make any difference. It has to be the former. And Bran and I hope to contribute to the solution by educating leaders of science, business, technologies, universities that can take steps in that direction that will actually help save the world. And in some ways, you're contributing to this too by helping publicize the issue, the problem, and the possible solutions. Just today, the governor said that this damn climate change problem is, you know, killing California and we have to do something about it. We have to get green. Well, if California got entirely green, it would do almost nothing about our climate change problem and our wildfires because we're such a small fraction of the total. If we want to solve our climate change problem, it's going to have to be part of an integrated worldwide solution as Evo says, which is admittedly a huge undertaking, but that's what it is. But couldn't California do something to get green and at least uh, make the fires uh, less devastating than they have been? Uh, Aren't there things that the utilities can do, securing your house if you live in a place that is at risk? Because these fires are going to continue. See, now you're sort of changing the subject, and I'd agree. Given that The climate change problem is a global problem that we might not solve quickly. We're going to have to figure out ways to adapt to it. And all those things you recommend are good adaptations. 
managing our forests better, managing our houses better, making sure that our utilities uh, have wires that are not likely to start fires. All those things are adaptive steps that would help. So I see what you're saying then. You're not talking about uh, preventing climate change or making it less bad. You're talking about adapting to it, even if it gets worse. Economists aren't known for consensus. And you, I know, Brad, are one of 3,000 economists that have signed a proposal to impose a carbon tax. Why is that so important? Well, for two reasons. One, the cost of burning carbon fuels ought to be reflected in their price. And it's not right now. And a tax would solve that. And then secondly, along the lines Evo was saying, it's an inducement as the price of fossil fuels rises to innovate and find other alternative forms of energy and energy usage. So Evo, does that mean then that there are things we can do as consumers, uh, even if we're willing to pay more in order to cope with the issue of fossil fuels? That's not really us as consumers, that's us as Californians and us as Americans, because this tax would apply to all of us. But I want to answer a little bit more on the question before when you said, can't California do anything about this? California has some of the most innovative technology minds in the world. In fact, uh, I don't think we are rivaled anywhere for our innovativeness. If we as Californians want to tackle the climate change problems, let's give appropriate subsidies to help invent things that will be workable all over the world, that will make a difference. This is something we can do. Going locally electric here is not a bad idea, but that's a, a drop on a hot stone. That's not going to make a difference. But using our universities, using Silicon Valley can make a big difference. What are some of the specific things that you think uh, ought to be subsidized? Uh, clearly, development of solar power and wind power is something that is improving tremendously. The biggest challenge right now is energy storage. So I would promote energy storage battery and other storage technologies as much as I could. And I think there will be no way around it, but we will need some nuclear power, much better power uh, than what we currently have safer, smaller, mass-produced. Those are the things that could really make a difference. We also need to upgrade our electric grid substantially and make it smarter because things like wind and solar, you can't consume those directly. You can't put wind in your car or uh, you know cook your food with sun. You have to go through electricity. So as we become much more electrified, it's going to need a much larger, smarter, more integrated electric grid. What does that mean? Elaborate on, on a smart grid. We hear that term a lot. We're going to have to do things like to have a, a time of day pricing. During, during intervals when electricity becomes scarce, it's going to have to, its price is going to have to change. And people are going to have to understand how that's working. And all that's going to require being able to, to interface with the provision of electricity, perhaps through your home computer. It's actually even simpler than that. It turns out that the U.S. has several different nets that are not very connected. So when we in the West need a lot of electricity, we can't draw on electricity that happens to be generated and useless from the East Coast and vice versa. If we connected the two, for example, and we had smart connections, we would actually reduce the need for battery power and storage quite tremendously. The question is, why hasn't it happened? Well, 
primarily because they are vested interests that uh, don't like this, that make profits of the current situation. And it is very hard to change regulatory processes to make it happen. But that is something that, that we could work on productively and that would make most of us better off. What regulations would you hope to see uh, enacted first? It's going to have to be done at a national level. Traditionally, electricity has been uh, regulated, like here in California, through the California Public Utilities Commission and so forth. And there's various other entities. Texas has its all its own generation, for example, and its own grid. That's not an efficient way to work. I think we're going to need national regulation and a national grid. How is that going to be accomplished, uh, given, as you say, uh, that it's all very local now, even though some states do cooperate with one another and there are regional uh, power uh, authorities of one kind or another? How do you get them all together? My answer would be that we try to train young minds to solve those problems. And that's what we're trying to do at UCLA. But uh, as to having a, an answer, I don't at this point in time. How about you, Evo? This is a political problem, and that has to do with uh, Congress and the president. It's tough. The United States is a country with not a lot of, of agreement. You mentioned vested interests other than the oil companies and the obvious ones. Uh, what are some that we ought to know about uh, just to be better informed uh, about who is uh, preventing things from happening that ought to happen? You know, I haven't really looked at that in, in any depth. And and I'm not sure it's all vested interest problems, just inertia. It's just a huge undertaking to dismantle a regulatory apparatus you've had for a century and replace it with something else. It requires coordination and agreement at a time where we don't seem to have much coordination and agreement. So, Evo, I take it you're worried about the same thing. Yeah, I'm worried about the same thing. There's also coal operators. Uh, coal technology, but that is going away by itself because coal is becoming increasingly non-competitive. There are the grid operators, which are currently sitting very cozy and very nice. And there's a lot of bureaucracy that, as Brad points out, bureaucracy does not like to move. Well, Brad, uh, what, what about uh, the carbon tax? And is there, in order to reveal the hidden cost involved, uh, going to be a, a, a shock and awe if, in fact, a carbon tax is uh, imposed and all of a sudden people realize how expensive their lives are. That's likely to be a real problem. That You're going to have to educate people about this. You saw what happened in France with the yellow vests when prices were raised. Yes, it could make truckers' lives more expensive. It could make the going to the gas pump more expensive. Electricity prices could even rise because we generate electricity from fossil fuels. It's not going to be an easy, easy task to get people to accept what the true cost of energy is. We haven't accepted it, and that's why we have the climate problem in part. Eva, what about the United States as a leader, a world leader, uh, in this regard, uh, we've, we're out of the Paris Accords. They weren't mandatory anyway. Um, is there a way the United States can reassert itself in an effective way, given what you've both said about the importance of this as an international issue? I'm not sure there is that much that the United States can do through political means. When you're a politician in China or India or Bangladesh or Brazil, 
you don't care so much about what the United States tells you what you're supposed to do. Now, obviously, we have given up all leadership during the last four years altogether. So whatever we had before, we have even less now. But ultimately, what we need to do is offer them solutions that are better for them and that are in their own interests, which means we've got to make available to them technology which is cheaper and better than what they would get if they burned more coal and oil. Brad, uh, back to the issue of, uh, of corporations and what responsibilities they might feel. I know you're an advocate of, of Milton Friedman, and I'm interested again on this issue of uh, whether there is a responsibility on the part of any corporation that, that uses energy for whatever purpose, particularly uh, if it's manufacturing, to seek other ways of generating energy uh, so they can at least to contribute uh, to the greening of the economy, if that's not a, a, an out-of-date phrase. Well, here's the problem with that, as Professor Friedman said 50 years ago. You're, in effect, levering a tax on the shareholders, assuming that this greener way is more expensive. If the greener way is cheaper, like Evo says, because we have new technologies, no problem. All the corporations will use the cheaper, greener way. The problem arises, what if the greener way is more expensive and you have to tax your shareholders? How much do you tax them? Who decides? Those are very difficult questions. That's why most economists say we have to decide at the national level what a fair tax on carbon is. And once that's reflected in prices, then businesses can go ahead and try to, to maximize their profits and shareholder value. And they'll automatically be taking account of the, uh, the green effect, if you like. As long as the prices are wrong, the economy will not function very effectively. Evo, we began by talking about the fires, and uh, there are so many ways that uh, uh, climate change can uh, affect us, and not just with fires, of course, but with sea level rise and uh, heat and with lack of water. Is there any particular one of those that is more amenable at this point uh, to being dealt with when we talk about adaptation and, uh, and mitigation? Uh, and should we focus on it in order to demonstrate that there is, in fact, something that can be done? Clearly, within California, we have to do something about the fires. We have to do something about where we allow people to build houses. Um, this is something that we have to address locally and we can address locally. Water, for the most part, if electricity becomes cheaper, if we innovate there, we can actually create more water from seawater. So that I don't see as much of a problem. Fortunately, the California coast line is also fairly steep, so we don't have Florida's problem that half of our state will disappear. Um, we can, we, we have areas that will be flooded. We can deal with this probably the same way that the Netherlands has dealt with being below sea level for a long time. So there's a lot of adaptations that, that we can do. And I'm actually not too worried about California. We are very wealthy. We have enough means to take care of our problems. It's really more poorer countries like Bangladesh that, that are going to face the music here. Does the developed world uh, have an obligation to uh, take care of those places 
given the kinds of disruption that, that might occur, particularly in terms of large numbers of people wanting to move uh, from one place to another, immigration is already a problem all over the world. Is it a crisis in that regard? And uh, should we then adopt uh, international policies or foreign policies by the United States to uh, try to cope with that? I wish that uh, moral obligations would matter more in international politics, but the fact of the matter is that they do not. So I cannot see the American public voting to impose taxes on ourselves to send to other countries because we polluted the globe more than they did. That's just not going to happen within democracies, within electoral systems, within any countries. So whether this is morally right and we have this moral obligation, I, I wish it, it was the case that that mattered, but I think ultimately it does not. So Brad, if we do get better at adaptation and mitigation of those consequences that we can't prevent, do you think that will make people more aware of the problems involved? And would they then be more willing to accept the cost of a carbon tax, for example, or uh, perhaps even be willing to uh, share resources with other people, uh, lest their problems become ours? Well, and, and they will. I mean, Bangladesh is considering building six large coal plants because they're trying to develop and they need energy. Well, if they build six large coal plants, that's going to, it's just the same as if we built them in California. It goes into the atmosphere and we all share it. That's why this is a global problem. And I would think, as Evo said earlier, maybe one of the best things we can do is to try to develop new technologies, better nuclear, better solar, better grids, and then share that knowledge with the world free of cost so that some of these countries can maybe skip the fossil fuel steps in the same way that they skipped landline telephones and, and go right to a, a cleaner technology. But at, at this point, I don't think that's feasible for them. I don't think that they would have reliable energy. And it looks like China is going to help Bangladesh build six new coal-fired power plants. At the same time that China is saying that it's trying to reduce its emissions? It is, but China gets 60% of their electricity from coal. They're going to try to cut back, but they're still going to burn an immense amount of coal. And it's ironic, they're burning coal to make batteries to put in Tesla cars that are in China that are then powered over the Chinese grid that runs on coal. So in China, Musk's wonderful new Tesla factory is pretty much coal powered. It, it's, it's very ironic. Well, let me ask you both as we come to uh, the close of our program. Uh, what do you think are the consequences, uh, Evo, if we don't begin to get this issue under better control than we have it now? What do we have to look forward to? And what are the consequences of a failure to move forward? There'll be a lot of misery in, develop in the developing world, in poorer countries, in, in areas that are far underwater, uh, far under sea level they are going to have a tough time. We in California actually will be reasonably okay. Places like Canada and Russia, of course, will be more than just okay. Brad, what do you say to that? Well, Evo's right about that. And that's one of the complexities here, that this is going to be, the costs are going to be borne primarily by people in tropical climates and poorer people in the Middle East, in Bangladesh, in Brazil, uh, 
that's what makes it such an international ethical issue that we in the United States, for example, became wealthy burning carbon fuels. And we're now saying there's a global problem. We can adapt to it. We're rich. You folks in Bangladesh are pretty much stuck. And, and, and yes, if you want to raise an ethical question, I think that's the key one. And do you agree with Eva Welsh that in California, we're okay. We can cope, for example, with the consequences of climate change in uh, uh, poor neighborhoods and in places where uh, they're already, they always suffer more uh, in the African-American and uh, Hispanic communities and other uh, places where there are people of color. We can cope with those issues now, do you think? Are you uh, satisfied that we can and, and will deal with that? Well, if you're wealthy, climate change is not going to be a big problem. You can move if you want, you can work from home, you can buy a place in Montana. Yes, it, it's going to exacerbate inequality. People who live in a poor town in Southern Mississippi are gonna have a very difficult time, no matter what their color. Is there any other issue we haven't touched on that uh, you really think is important that we ought to emphasize? Well, we haven't talked about population, but uh, you know, I'm over 70 years old now, and in my lifetime, the human population has more than tripled, and I don't think it can triple again. Paul Ehrlich might have been premature, but he raised some very serious issues. And, and one good note here along Evo's lines is, as, as societies get richer and women have more opportunities, population growth falls. So once again, our solution may be to get wealthier and smarter. The one thing that I want to add is that it sounds almost like um, we are despairing or it's all going to get worse. I don't think that's going to be the case. I think technology is progressing quite fast. I think we will have cheaper solar. I think we will have better wind power. I think we will have safe, small, mass-produced nuclear plants. I think they're coming. One of the great things about capitalism is that it actually makes people better off in the end. With all its flaws and all its warts, people, the, the, the economy actually invents new things that solve problems. This is a problem. Cheaper energy is coming. And yes, we can do a lot more to speed it up and to make it better and make it faster than it would otherwise happen by itself, but it will happen by itself. So this is a problem that in 20 to 50 years is going to be taken care of. This is not something that will go on forever and we will all just die in misery. This is not the case. There's actually good reason to be very optimistic about this, but at the same time, we shouldn't be complacent. We can improve it and we can help it. Great to end on a positive note. Uh, Brad Cornell, do you agree with that? Definitely. I think investing in technology is probably the best thing we can do, like I say, in wealthy countries, and then make that knowledge available freely worldwide. It's actually somewhat depressing when you listen to the public debate about this. On the one hand are the people who believe that uh, we have to go back to nature and capitalism is evil and blah, blah, blah. And, and you listen to this and these are just not practical solutions and they're not gonna get us anywhere. You listen to the people that are for divestment in carbon and oil stocks. And this is a complete sideshow. It's completely irrelevant, it's unimportant. And worse than that, it actually distracts from what are real solutions, real improvements that we could do immediately that would actually pay for themselves almost immediately. We haven't talked much about this, but things like carbon um, methane emissions could be very easily regulated and stopped. And it would actually be a positive benefit. It wouldn't be very costly at all. 
So we're trying to focus on things that actually truly make a difference rather than just things that make you feel good. And there's so much grandstanding, as Evo said. I mean, the whole divestiture thing that we went through at the University of California was, in my view, a waste of time and misleading. And the oil companies aren't bad. If we don't have oil companies, we can't have air travel. Without air travel, we'd go back to the 19th century. So we have to deal with these things in a sophisticated, wise way. And we're hoping our course takes a little step in that direction. Well, you both have uh, obviously uh, a lot of lessons to teach, and I hope that uh, your course in climate change, energy, and finance goes well. And uh, thank you very much, both of you, for being with us. Uh, Evo Welsh, again, holds the Fred Weston Chair in Finance at UCLA Anderson, uh, and Bradford Cornell is a professor emeritus there. He's also managing director of BRG, the Berkeley Research Group. Thank you both. Thank you. Thank you.